Welcome to Beyond the Flight Deck podcast with United Airlines pilot and investment advisor, Alan Bewley, who will take you behind the scenes with airline pilot entrepreneurs, academics, and other professionals. And now, your host, Alan Bewley. If I had one word to describe Zachary Shapiro, it would be energy, enthusiasm, passion. Okay, that's three. But if you're a pilot for United Airlines, this is a good thing because Zach is the current managing director, Flight Crew Resources. Zach grew up in Westchester County, New York. His father in the financial services industry and his mother a teacher. Now, like many of us, he had a passion for aviation at a young age. While taking flying lessons in his teens, he realized he was more suited to solve industry problems from an office than in the cockpit. Zach's journey started with a hospitality administration major from Cornell, during which time he was fortunate to land two key internships. Since 2005, he's worked for three airlines, an airline financial consulting firm, and Airbus Industries. Welcome Beyond the Flight Deck, Zach Shapiro. Zach, welcome Beyond the Flight Deck. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for thanks for spending time with us today. Uh, as you told me a minute ago, you're out at our flight training center, which is uh, dear, near and dear to every United Pilots heart, I think. Uh, anyway, we all know it well. So let's uh, let's dive in and get to know who Zach is and what led you to the position you're in right now at United. So let's start out going all the way back to the beginning. Uh, where'd you grow up? Quick insight, what your parents did for a living, siblings in the household, just a quick refresh on that. Yeah, no, you got it. Thanks. I grew up in the suburbs of uh, New York City uh, in Westchester County, about 35 minutes New York City. Um, and uh, I was uh, the product of very supportive parents. You know, I don't think you realize it at the time growing up, but um, uh, my dad was in financial services. Um, uh, my mom taught nursery school, um, then went uh, into fundraising, but was always there when my sister and I got home from school. Um, and um, that just, uh, look, every family makes their own uh, decisions as it relates to priorities and sacrifices they're willing to make to achieve those priorities. And uh, my parents want to be very present. My dad was at all my high school baseball games every day um, at my, my sister's events. I have, a, I have a younger sister, three three years younger than me. She's in the fashion industry in New York. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I had a great upbringing, don't realize uh, how great it was in terms of the values that were instilled in me and the sacrifices my parents made um, to support my interests, uh, you know, until you start doing it yourself, right? Yeah. So No, I, I don't think I realized how great my parents were until I was, actually, I think I figured out young, I was about 18. And it was mainly yeah. young for me because my dad taught me how to fly when I was 16. And yeah, kind of melded our relationship. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, so in that vein that, you know, I, I started taking flying lessons. They, they saw I had a passion for airplanes at a very early age. And uh, I, I, you know, instead of taking me to the park every weekend, we only went to the park every other weekend. We went to LaGuardia airport uh, and the weekends in between, these were the days you could pass through security without having a ticket. And they, I just, they, they stood, they, they spent hours just letting me gaze and, and watch airplanes out the window. Um, and ultimately supported me taking flying lessons at the age of 12 at a Westchester County airport. 
um, again, not realizing that the financial commitment they, 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 they had to support, but, um, uh, it was, uh, obviously I'm not a pilot. We can get into that in a little bit if you want, but, um, but no, that, that all ties together in terms of, you know, what sort of led me, start leading me down the path where I was today. Supportive, yeah, yeah, supportive so upbringing. Interview over. We know how you got here. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> What, uh, where in financial services was your father? Institutional, retail? I'm, I'm a retail yeah. advisor with United Pilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so he was, he was a retail stockbroker. Um, uh, when you know, before sort of technology became ubiquitous, and a lot of it became self-service, and and um, you, you know, you had had the online uh, heyday of of us being able to do it ourselves with low commission trades, and so you know, he pivoted as as the industry pivoted and went into sort of the uh, the compliance side of of things, just knowing the business, the day to day, and leverage that to uh, to be able to um, you know continue thriving. Um, in the industry he knows. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you mentioned baseball in high school sports growing up. That was big for you. Yeah, not really. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm five, nine hundred fifty pounds. It was a little bit of a late bloomer. So football was out of the question, certainly not wrestling, but, uh, you know, as, as a baseball guy, I played, uh, played center field, um, all throughout, all throughout high school. And it's my favorite sport today. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big uh, Hardcore ba- a Mets fan, you said? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hardcore baseball people stay that way for life. So uh, I get that. All right. So it takes a special uh, mind to appreciate the sport. I don't say that in like a, a you know, uh, a, a way that, oh, oh, it takes strategic thinking or above it. I just know that there are a lot of people who don't have the patience to watch nine innings. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it can be a long game. That, that's for sure. So, all right. So um, whether they label this you or not, uh, when Zach is about to graduate high school, uh, the senior class could have voted. You were most likely to X coming out of high school. What would that have been? Yeah, you know, I I think that it was going to be sort of work in the airline industry. I think it was. I think it was most likely to probably hear a welcome aboard announcement. This is your captain, Zachary Shapiro, that, uh, and and most likely that that that's people would get on an airplane and hear that one day. Okay. Um, it was just well known that that was my passion. Um, the industry was my passion growing up. Okay, um, and did you keep flying through high school? Keep working on your ratings. Yeah. So no. So I started, uh, I started uh, flying at a Westchester County airport. I had to sit on a phone book to see out the front windshield of the Sakata Tampico. Um, as I, as I joked self-deprecatingly, a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, and, and got up there. One of the things I learned Westchester County airport is not a good efficient airport to take flying lessons. You know, the Hobbs is running, you're waiting. ATC is trying to fit you in between, you know, the U S airways express dash eight and the G five. And so, and the Lear and they're trying to get you out. And so, you know, it was efficient coupled with instructors coming and going, them moving on to, to corporate jet jobs and whatnot. And also I found Alan, I would take off and my mind was running wild. We're doing S turns above the Hudson river over the tap and Z touch and goes at Stewart. And I'm thinking about things and it's just, I, I, I found my mind sort of running wild in a strategic sense. And I said to myself that this is awesome. This is a 
cool job. I think it's the coolest job in the world. Um, but through that growth throughout high school, I think I, I found myself wanting to channel the passion towards the business side of the industry um, rather than, you know, having um, flying as a vocation, um, albeit I still think it's the coolest job in the world from just, a, you know, a technical sense as well as um, what, what the pilots do to be the literal connectors and enablers of, of what, what aviation is, is a conduit of global commerce, allowing kids to see Disney World for the first time, connecting grandparents with their, their grandkids. So it was getting too profound too early on. Um, I just think what we all do collectively, how we support each other in our collective mission of um, in, in United's case, connecting people and united the world is, is really special. And, and I still amazes me that this company makes money from time to time. <laughs> Just any company, any airline. Um, yeah. All right. So you went to my father's alma mater. He's a 1960 Cornell graduate. Um, and you studied hospitality administration. Uh, how did that play into what's turned out for your career? Was that a good choice? Yeah, it was because listen, at the end of the day, airlines are service industries, right? And uh, back when I went to school, it may have not felt the time. It may have been in the heyday of airlines feeling like a commodity. But the concepts of, of the services industry, whether it's hotels, restaurant, cruise ships, it's high fixed cost, low variable cost, right? right? Capital intensive assets a cruise ship, building a hotel, buying a wide body airplane, yeah. but serving one incremental customer really doesn't cost a whole lot much more. Mm -hmm. So the concepts, the fundamentals were very applicable. You know, it's called the school of hotel administration. I had an amazing four years there, um, but I had the latitude to apply my projects to aviation. You know, it called hotel administration, but it was really the school geared towards the services industry. And they're broad from, you know, retirement, home management to sports management to, um, you know, hotels, restaurants, cruise ships, airlines. Um, and so I was allowed to chart this course there and, and orient it towards doing a lot of work on airlines because of the fundamentals on the cost side, as well as the commercial side. Um, being very in line with the, with the principles, you know, revenue yeah. management, um, financial accounting, and so on and so forth. Sure. So while you were there, you had what looked like two pretty cool internships, one at Seabury Capital, one at JetBlue. Yeah. Um, yeah. JetBlue, you did some route planning work. I think we might yeah. all understand that a little bit. Talk to yeah. us a little bit about Seabury Capital, because you kind of revisited this later in your career. The, the yeah, so... Yeah, so I broke into the industry in, um, in as you mentioned, the, the advisory capacity. Um, and I had some great mentors there that taught me everything about the business. I mean, I went into Seabury just knowing how to like make a chart in Excel <laughs> bar graph and had an interest in um, the, the industry, a passion for the industry. And, and the folks there um, took to my passion and taught me the business. Yeah. of aviation. Um, and so I will always owe them that debt of gratitude. Um, and it was great. It did work around um, just advisory services for airlines um, um, that were trying to raise capital to buy airplanes or just for general corporate purposes, financing for their airplanes, um, business plan evaluation, investors that were looking into um, invest into the space and, and looking for our assessment. And so I was like a kid in a candy store um, and uh, great people, great exposure. Um, but then to point out, Alan, I saw the industry from this macro um, or sort of third party advisor perspective. And I really wanted 
to understand it from one of the players' perspectives. And JetBlue at that time, very different airline than it is today, didn't fly to Boston yet, didn't have the E-190 yet, was yeah. still more in its relative infancy in terms of its life cycle. And it was an airline that was out there to really live this concept of service, right? Its adage was bringing humanity back to air travel. And it really jibed with everything I was going to school for around this service education and viewing air travel as a service yeah. um, and not a commodity. And um, so, um, you know, through some will, through some connections, I, I just was, was able to do, as you pointed out, my, my second couple of internships while at, while at school um, with JetBlue in, uh, in route planning. Okay. And so I assume the connections you made there parlayed into your first job out of Cornell, yep. JetBlue. Uh, yep. Talk a little bit about the work you did, not so much your intern year, but when you worked there your first year. Yeah, so so I worked in, uh, I started my full-time career there in operational planning, um, and it, it was sort of like an internal consulting group that went into various facets of the operation and just sort of um, brought some consultant-like approach to um to things like the turn process of what happens between when an airplane blocks in and blocks out and how do you how are you doing it you know uh, efficiently um, dependably consistently obviously safely um, the safety is obviously the least number one value um, and so what was really neat about that is before I, I we, we started doing projects like that is I took the the class that our customer service crew members took the airport above wing agents because you know it was neat that if we were going to go into the operation and do projects like that how do we do so with credibility and not right. be like the headquarters type that are coming in to tell us what to do but be able to say hey i was trained like you were trained um i i had experience working in the airport and now i'm here as a partner with complementary perspectives and and i want your perspective and it, it really made it very successful but um you know it, it was great jeppu also has um uh, or had back then a holiday helper program where folks from the airports uh, or, or folks from headquarters would go down and help out at the airports during the peak holiday travel periods and and having had a full-time role in role in operational planning where you were immersed in the operation as your day-to-day -day job um, made it very seamless then during these holiday peak periods to go and be checking customers in, helping board flights. Um, and so it was, was a really fun way to start my full-time career in my early 20s. Yeah. All right. So that's kind of interesting. You, a couple of things you said there. Um, giving you the credibility by taking that customer service course, you know, giving you the credibility when you showed up at the holiday season. What's always been interesting to me is I live right next to the University of Virginia, and, and people come through here and then they graduate and go to the Darden School of Business as you mm -hmm. went to Wharton. They come out of there and get a job with a, uh, a consulting firm and now they're consulting big companies. I'm like, mm -hmm. how does that, how does two years at a, at a business school really, I mean, how does a 30-year veteran in an industry look at a 22-year-old, 24-year-old with, with an MBA trying to tell them how to change their business? I have a hard time. I've never been on either side of that table, but... Um, I mean, yeah, I'm curious about that. You know, I don't know how much experience you have with it, but it sounds like you at least took the initiative or they put you through that initiative. So when you showed up, you knew something about it. Yep. Yep. And you show up and, 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 and people sort of start like this with their hands, cro arms crossed, and then slowly 
the arms come down and you develop that that partnership to to work through the issues together because the reality is those those people who do that day in and day out boarding the flights in day out loading the bags they, they it's them who knows the issues right, right we right. need to show up and listen and 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 you know it's it's a classic you know approach to leadership about listening listening to those who who do it day in day out and understanding the pain points they they tell you where the problems are right right yeah well at the same time though you can still come with a different perspective right exactly. i think that's probably what it is um, all right. You did not spend that long at JetBlue and you went back into the, the aviation finance side of the house with, with yeah. Skywars Holdings. What what sucked you back out? Uh, and then you, you spent a couple of years there. Tell us about tell us about why that transition happened and, and uh, what you did there. Yeah. So um, I the partners I had worked for at Seabury um, had split off and started their own um, advisory shop called Skyworks. Um, and originally when they started, they had more focused on the financial advisory type work around the traditional, more investment banking, capital raising type work. And they knew my passion was around the strategic advisory stuff, helping airlines decide which airplanes to buy, business plan analysis, um, you know, helping investors um, analyze a business and the prospects of the business. And so after Skyworks got started and, and um, they were really looking to um, diversify out of the, the, the focus area of the investment banking work that they had focused on spooling up um, and really now trying to balance it with some of the strategic advisory work where they, um, where they knew my head was, right? When we talked about my head running wild at, at altitude. And, and so, you know, one thing led to another, I go sit on the porch of one of the partner's houses one night, we catch up and sort of one thing led to another. And um, I found myself at Skyworks. And, and that was the first, um, first, I think, lesson to me of that you don't want to be running away from something. You want to be running towards something else as it relates to the next step in your career. And so I wasn't running away from JetBlue. I could have, uh, there was a lot I, I wanted to see and do and more at JetBlue. JetBlue is a great company. I can still recite the five values, safety, caring, fun, passion, and integrity that JetBlue lives by today. Um, I joke that there will always be part of me that bleeds blue. Um, but I wasn't running away from JetBlue. I was running towards um, this new opportunity at Skyworks to go help build stuff out. Um, and that 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 has been sort of the catalyst of one thing leading to the other of where I am today. But I I I, I wound up working on a lot of projects um, around um, aircraft analysis and helping airlines understand you know, the A320 family versus the 737 family, and then within a fleet family, um, the gauge analysis, right? So can I fill the A321 often enough at a profit maximizing yield and load factor to offset the incremental operating cost of the heavier airplane? Right. And an and analysis like that, and especially for airlines who don't necessarily aren't in the business of buying airplanes on the regular, Right. They they're they're operators, they're commercial organizations of marketing and selling the product, um, but buying these big, expensive assets that they may only do once every decade, if that right. um, they brought in specialists. And just I wound up working on a lot of projects like that, that and that's ultimately what 
wound up leading me to Airbus one day. So uh, let me pause there in the event you want to talk anything more about Skyworks. Yeah. So um, when you are helping airlines make these decisions, say these aircraft order uh, decisions, do you guys also follow on to the actual negotiation process with Airbus, with Boeing? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So it's yeah. not just which is the ideal fleet mix for us for this next order is now let's move on to negotiating with the, the manufacturers. Um, yep. I, I want to actually, I, I, there was a question I had about your, your stint there at JetBlue and you were talking about things with uh, turn times. Um, mm -hmm. Did you guys at JetBlue study the industry leader in turn time Southwest at the time and look at, you know, how they did their 36 minute turn times or whatever they were or still are? Oh yeah, no. You look at you look at a lot of best practices and and sort of the the Gantt chart of the bottlenecks and and where who which airlines do what and and but you know there are different business models, right? And so um, obviously uh, Southwest's boarding is very different than what JetBlue was um, uh, as it relates to um, no assigned seats on Southwest. And so JetBlue piloted a handful of different things is one of the projects we did that was um, sort of, uh, you know, different facets of the, uh, or, or each of the elements that compose the, the turn process, what are the, um, what are the best practices out there? What makes sense for our business model? Um, and, and in line with, you know, a lot of other a lot of other airlines um, have, have done that as well. You know, there are boarding practices out there that on the internet that you've seen some other airlines pursue as well. You know, there's something called like um, Wilma, you know, uh, window middle aisle, trying to board that way, boarding no seat assignments, whatnot. So I think, yeah, it's um, you, you, you look out there and you look at uh, best practices, you try different things. Um, sometimes you double down on what you're doing and sometimes you find a new way of, uh, of doing stuff. Yeah. Or you fail, you know, you, yeah. 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 If, if it's funny, my interview with Scott was great because he, uh, he went to work for America West early on. It was a small company mm -hmm. and the CEO yep. said, look, if you do well, we're going to promote you. If you, if you, we're going to let you do what you want. If you do well, you're promoted. If you screw it up, you're gone, you know? Yep. And, and yep. the man put his money where his mouth is. <laughs> it was yep. No, I, I watched that interview last night in preparation for today. Oh, good. Good. Um, <laughs> All right. So you had a great experience. It sounds like it, it Skyworks. You obviously made a lot of connections. You worked with airlines, you worked with uh, obviously aircraft manufacturers, because from there you went to Airbus and you stayed there for quite a while. Yeah. Um, what was your primary role there and, and what kind of work did you do? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'll, let me start by answering a question you didn't ask um, how I landed at Airbus. You know, the phone rang somewhere. You, you, well, if you had asked me 20 years ago, if you could see myself, if I could see myself working at an OEM, you know, uh, 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 I would have laughed and said, ha, I'm not an engineer. What would I do at a manufacturing company? Right. right? How naive uh, a response that was, naive if not ignorant. But it just goes to show you don't know what you don't know is, is out there and the opportunities. So phone rang somewhere, some uh, one day, someone who I worked with on a deal on the other side of the day table had found himself at Airbus. And he said, hey, I think you'd be great here. And again, I had the what I'll call ignorant response of what am I going to do at an engineering company and a manufacturing company? I'm a business right. guy. And not appreciating that these manufacturers, these OEMs have these big marketing and sales organizations right. who would like to... Uh, 
have people who understand how airlines evaluate the product, how the end users of the product um, schedule them, how they flow through networks, how they're, they're, they, they analyze maintenance costs and whatnot. And so I went into Airbus in, in an airline marketing role um, that does a lot of fleet planning work from the, the Airbus perspective. So partnering with airlines, obviously, um, under the guise of you know, promoting the Airbus product, but around fleet planning, financial analysis, revenue analysis, right? So how often are you going to fill the incremental seats at what price, um, the, the cost of the airplanes in the case of Airbus, Airbus versus its, its competitive competing airplanes, um, aircraft performance analysis, right? So hot and high conditions, contaminated runway. I mean, I learned so much about operations, um, engineering, performance analysis, second segment climb, uh, VMO and single engine out, right? What drives uh, performance limitations, um, LOPA's layout of passenger accommodations and efficiencies of where you place the labs, um, stuff like that. And then I moved into a, a sales role, which is really, um, it's not like peddling product per right. se. It's um, leading the team responsible for the business partnership with airlines and the cross-functional team comprises the airline marketing role I just described, um, contracts negotiation, the customization efforts, the, the, the financing um, of the airplanes and, and the, 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 the sales um, the director brings that together um, to partner with the airlines. Um, and so I did that with, um, with a variety of airlines. You got to know a lot of people um, at the airlines. Sometimes I'd be coming home from business trips and have to pinch myself that this was real. Like my job was to like sit around and discuss fleet planning with airline executives. And um, one of the airlines I worked with was U.S. Airways before the U.S. Airways American merger. And then when the U.S. Airways American merger happened, um, I, I assumed responsibility of the combined airline. Um, they, they were actually U.S. Airways was before the merger, the operator of the world's largest Airbus fleet, uh, not a very widely known fact. So it was a great privilege to get to um, lead that relationship on behalf of Airbus. That's cool. Um, so, Talking about Airbus and, and, and Boeing as well, uh, you were there 09 to uh, 16, quite a while. Yep. Um, yep. That would have been an amazing time for Boeing and or Airbus to create a replacement for the 767, yet nobody did. And you look at us, we're hanging on to our 67300s, 400s. American has parked theirs as my interview with Onkit, talking to him. Uh, he's like, that's great for us because they've got the capital outlay of a 787. Again, high fixed cost, low variable. And and they're going to try and fly European routes with an airplane that needs to be flown 12, 14 hours. But um, so it's a good thing for us. Yeah, we may have to have a spare airplane or two around to keep the fleet going. But why? Why? You know, the, the 67s came out in the 80s. Uh, we there's just not been a replacement. Is this something that the airlines and you discussed when you were at Airbus? And, you know, I can't, can't really speculate as to what was going on at Boeing at the time, but why are we here with this huge hole unfilled? Yeah, no, I, I, I yes. The short answer is yes. We are, we are always, um, we're always discussing that, that type stuff. And, and, and it was our job to, um, understand the market uh so knowing what what our customers what our market uh needs are 
And so um, do a lot of work around sort of 757 replacement, 767 replacement. You know, I think in the, you look at sort of some of the approaches around re-engineering, right? And when you think about developing a whole new aircraft platform sure. versus sure. the economics of taking what's a very reliable product today that's proven, known, mature, and I mean mature in a good way from an ops reliability standpoint, and leverage sort of re-engined economics. Um, and we've seen that play out on the single aisle side with the Neo for Airbus or the Max for Boeing, um, as well as on the, the wide body side for Airbus's strategy around re-engineering the, the 330 to have the 800 and 900 um, are laying off the 200 and 300 respectively, you get um, sort of, I don't want to go into sales pitch mode, but yeah. you get the, uh, the, the benefits of a, a proven mature platform with re-engined benefits um, as opposed to, you know, everything that comes with developing a new airplane, both the lead time, um, you know, airplane development costs that are supposedly be passed along to the customer. Um, and then invariably, you know, the, the, the entry into service period on the path to that maturity. So during the time you were there, were airlines not asking for, you know, 190 to 220 seat, wide body airplane, IE 767-300 replacement at the time. Uh, Airbus didn't build it. Everything they built was a little bigger or a little smaller. Uh, Boeing, yeah. the 787-8 is still a good bit bigger than the 67300. So I guess what you're telling me is if the airlines at the time weren't asking for it, you guys weren't building it. But, you know, the re-engineering, I understand, but they don't have new engines on the 67300s or 400s. It doesn't even sound like it's being talked about. So. Yeah, I think, you know, again, to your point, not knowing the strategy up in Seattle, nor to give out, um, you know, I think the strategic thinking of the time, I think when you look at what wound up playing out, the 321 Neo and it, the variants that have built, uh, they're being built off of that, meaning, you know, what is going to be the XLR, right, airplanes that, that we at United are, are uh, going to take and very excited about, um, served one end of the 767's market, right? Okay. So there's there's sort of the lower end of the 767 market, whether you want to call them long and thin routes or whatnot, right. um, especially we're starting to put live flat business class seats on that airplane. That well, There was a portion of the 767's market that was Catch. taken by, yeah, 321neo. And then the upper end of the market, I mean, you look at a, an airplane like um a 330-gauged airplane or a 787-gauged airplane. Um, I think what, what was also going on in that time, when you look at the evolution of the product and business class seats, mm. right, you needed a bigger gauge um, to sometimes offer the same number of business class seats because everything went to lie flat, right? Remember when sort of the days when sort of like Club World on BA was pioneering and, and Virgin Atlantic pioneered some of these, uh, what, a bed on an airplane, like lie flat, right? right and right. EOS Airlines uh, to London. And now look, like lie flat became the standard and whatnot. So you also, there was also the migration of gauge mm -hmm. because to serve the same 
business number of business class customers with the evolution of the business class product. You also need a bigger gauge. And so look, to your point, is there always some element of the market that may not be covered with the, the optimized airplane? Yeah. And that's what it's on the OEMs to go figure out the business case. How much of that exists? And what will it cost the OEMs to come up with it? And then what will the airlines willing to pay for it? So, so if you can can, cover you have a career as uh, as an airplane sales uh, person, if you want one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can cover sixty five percent of the market by covering the three twenty one Neo Max ten, and then the three thirty seven eighty seven eight. You just miss a third of it, possibly. And I would actually argue that the, the that percentage that you quoted is is much much higher. But okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So someone or something then convinces you that you're done with uh, being a sales and marketing guy and it's time to go back into airline operations. And like you said, post-merger, you go to American. How did that transition happen? Yeah. So I got to know um, a lot of, a lot of folks at American, as I said, through the Airbus business partnership and, and um, they were, um, I think they saw that I was, I was an airline guy at heart. Uh, not just, it wasn't just about the metal to me. I like talking about flows and lines of flying and how an airplane flows through a network. How do you crew it? Where does it go into maintenance, right? How do you provide fleet concentration to have swappability when an airplane goes out of service? And I'm having these discussions and relishing it with, with right. the airlines. And I think they say, well, you're an, you're an airline guy, Zach. So, you know, you, and so, um, yeah. And so, so they, they made me an ops guy. Um, I, I had a first job at American in um, system operations, what American calls their integrated operations center. It's this big flagship building down south of DFW um, where the entire airline is dispatched from, do maintenance planning, crew scheduling, um, you know, emergency planning and response. I mean, there are pictures of it on the internet. Um, it's it's like this big NASA-like operation um, when you think about like a mission control and it's the equivalent to our at United uh, NOC. And in my uh, first role in American was to go develop feedback loops between system operations and the planning groups of the airline. Because the planning groups of the airline, the network plannings of the world, the operations plannings of the world would develop these great plans. But if system operations was struggling to deliver the plan every day and something was off and, and there was opportunity to go develop these feedback loops around, hey, Look at these wide body lines of flying. Great aircraft utilization looks great on paper, um, but tough to actually execute across the operation. And really, um, through with a couple colleagues, spearheaded um, that effort to bring system operations perspective into the schedule development process. Okay. Um yeah, the, these are things you were at Airbus talking to people at American, them complaining about or United complaining about, right? Uh, things that they're struggling with. And now you get to jump into it. Um, while you were back at Airbus for a second, you did get your MBA at Wharton. To, um, what kind of value do you see in that? There, there are a lot of people watching who have kids that are going to college, who yeah. uh, are their kids are considering an MBA. I, I talked about Darden School of Business here at Virginia. How much value yep. did that bring to you for, uh, from a perspective of doing your job, credentialing, networking? Yeah, so uh, it's fascinating. Everyone's business case around the MBA is different. Right. 
Um, and I had written off getting an MBA, not because I don't see the value in it, but my business case was challenged. And so I thought about it a long time. Um, would I want it all else being equal? Yes, but all else wasn't equal to me. And here's why. I would have financed it 100% through debt. I wasn't looking to use it to catalyze a career step or an industry change. Mm -hmm. And related there too, because of that, like I wasn't looking to go into consulting or, you know, uh, investment banking, where the compensation structure is very um, bonus based, where there'd be a windfall to help repay that debt. Um, and then lastly, um, it, and you sort of alluded to this in some of the, the, the comments earlier on about, you know, advisory versus being in the industry. Um, two years in the industry to go leave the industry for two years to go back to the classroom. What was the value of the classroom experience versus the uh, the, the, the two, what I could continue learning in the industry for two years. And so the business case wasn't clear to me. Would I love to have it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I had ruled it out. And then Airbus came to me and said, you know, what about if we partner on this? Okay. And um, Airbus helped um, sponsor uh, my MBA in an unprecedented way um, in what I thought was a win-win fashion. And so I went and got it um, while I was still working, doing what I described of the role. Yeah. Um, and um, honestly, the, one of the biggest things I learned from that wasn't about in the classroom. It was about time management and right. making every minute of the day count. So look, do I think, do I, do I, um, would I recommend it all else equal? Yeah. Um, the learning back in the classroom, years removed from undergrad and having work experience that you can, there's a maturity that you're back in the classroom. Um, but there's also the, the, the symbiosis of the, leveraging all your classmates yeah. having that as well. So I was in, I was in class with, you know, investment bankers. I was in classes with doctors. I was in class with um, people who were, are in the Navy. Yeah. Um, and honestly, not take anything away from the faculty. Um, but you know, the, 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 the real secret sauce was that interaction with your classmates, the diversity of perspectives and the maturity they're all bringing at, at the, you know, the time they're doing their MBAs. Sure. And, sure. and it's questionable how much that would benefit a 22 year old versus a 30 year old. Yeah, right. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Um, what was interesting to me, both Paul Carlson and Ankit Gupta got their first jobs with airlines through contacts they made at their, in their MBA programs. Um, yeah. so your, yours was a little bit different, but, uh, interesting. Okay. All right. So you step into American in that ops reliability role, which was, it's really interesting to me though, because yeah, the people behind the, behind the curtains generating all these great plans, then you got to bring them out into reality and see how they work. Um, how long did you end up doing that versus, uh, and then you went into flight training, planning and schedule. Then you went back and then you kind of went down the scheduling planning path. Yeah. So I'll just give you the, 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 the sort of the rest of the career at American I'm happy to dive into anything more specific. Yeah. So I went over to the flight training, planning and scheduling team responsible for, you know, planning everything from 
um, the simulators through OE. So, you know, in doc through, through OE, um, everything in the schoolhouse, the simulators, everything with the, the LCAs. Um, and I went over there not knowing a thing about their world. I didn't know how often we brought pilots in for training when we went over there. Um, and I was thrown into this, and I think it was a little bit of a test on both sides. So I, I, I'm obviously not a pilot by trade. So bringing someone with my perspective over there, um, seeing how that would work out, and also throwing me into the deep end of a world I don't know, and um, was the was the longest year of my life. But I grew the most. Um, you know, went over there, had to work through things around. Team issues with HR, you know, we had to work through things with just the any of the agencies we we partner with that's involved in in, in flight training, you know, from regulatory standpoint, the FAA and whatnot, um, and just all all the the the, the um, Allied Pilots Association, right, was my first foray, really really um, engaging um, in in with, with with unions, and so again. Um, and honestly, also one of the biggest learning was it was for the first time in my career where I had to learn to delegate because I didn't know everything. You had to rely on the team. And for anyone who struggles with that, you need to be thrown into an opportunity where you're forced to do that. Yeah. So I did that. Um, an opportunity came along, a promotion to go lead line maintenance planning. Um, that is everything from, you know, the maintenance network, um, where we do maintenance, the, the, the footprint, uh, how much work do we do in the hubs versus the spokes and um, aircraft routing, you know, the team responsible putting the right tail on the uh, uh, line of flying to get it routed into maintenance, the bill of work planners, um, um, the uh, AMT um, headcount staffing and budget. Um, so, so went over there. Um, was there during COVID and the pandemic. Um, I had a peers uh, job who um, was eliminated during the restructuring of the airline. So I also took over base maintenance planning, the heavy maintenance planning, the hangar work, um, our, our relationships with the business partnerships that, um, you know, do, do some of the aircraft uh, conversion work. Uh, and then um, moved into a newly created role called um, integrated operations strategic planning that um, had a uh, responsibility for what's called the, the, the operational fabric functions of the airline. So crew planning, pilot planning, flight attendant planning, the block time planning, and then also um, coordinating across all of the operating functions, airports, tech ops, regional, cargo, to ensure that we were building schedules that balanced profitability with operability. Right. So had sort of functional responsibility for a few functions um, that were sort of operational fabric. And then um, sort of, you know, the, the liaise, the ambassador, the coordinator across the operational functions with network planning. And actually, my team sat with network planning to ensure that the operational perspective was there, conjoined, and really immersed during the incubation of, of, of network development plans, um, uh, as opposed to sort of having to catch up to them. Yeah. How how different are those uh, roles? And, and just kind of go back and look. You dealt with overall operations reliability, but then you went back into planning, flight yep. flight training planning, maintenance planning, big pick. You know, uh, all uh, maintenance planning. Um, you're, 
is it is it just a different deck of chairs that you're pushing around? Are they are they wholly different in the, I mean you're trying to accomplish the same thing, but just with very yeah. different moving parts? Yeah, no, I, I think that it's look, it takes so much of us all to come together every day to get, you know, seats sold at a profit maximizing load factor and yield, um, an airplane on the gate ready to fly. Um, MEL free, giving our airports ops colleagues um, the, uh, the chance to turn the airplane in the time that they're allotted, get an airplane dispatched off the ground, um, land on time, um, reliably, and obviously foremost, uh, safely once per day, right? Yeah. Think about the airlines that we do that on the main line between 2,000 and 3,000 times a day. It's right. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you think about no one function can do that alone. So I think I think what these what these roles do, Alan, is they teach you to think like a general manager. You're not a subject matter expert in any one of them, but I think that you go from role to role, you develop a mosaic of perspectives that helps hone your way of just acting like a general manager and leading. And I think American does a really good job of developing leaders. Um, you know, and, and, and they, 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 they've moved people around. I, I, my stint at American isn't unlike others. Um, and to develop that mosaic of perspectives, but you go into these roles and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be the subject matter expert, right. but it's how you go in, bring that GM perspective, see how we do things, see how we, um, where there's opportunity, develop a vision, affect change. And, and bring people along with you to buy into that change for the betterment of everyone. At the end of the day, that's the playbook, I think. Um, it's leadership. Um, and, you know, not to take anything away from the technical aspects of one role versus another, but I think the fundamentals are very transferable of how to succeed in the role. Sure, sure. So there's a gigantic sucking sound from American to United when it comes to leadership, right? Everyone I've interviewed and beyond, Andrew Nasella and Patrick Quayle, who I haven't talked to, all you guys are coming from American. So you are recruited uh, last year to come over here and, like you said before our call, fill a, a role of a, a guy that's been doing it for quite a long time, on and off. Um what brought you? What what was the determining factor to, to get you over to United? So I think um, I think it probably started when um, I was sitting at my desk one day and I saw the announcement of United Next, and I said, "Huh, that's interesting." Um, and look, the pandemic was an opportunity. I think it was a soul illuminating event where a lot of corporations were faced with this unprecedented 99.9th percentile event mm -hmm. that no one plans for. Right. And the real company's soul was illuminated in how it reacted to that event. And American did some great things that would have never been done. I mean, look at the fleet simplification that American did and, and, and I can rave on and on about how American handled it. Um, but I started seeing what United was doing. Um, and I started seeing what was um, just this rallying team around this strategy, this vision, this North Star of United Next, leveraging core four, leveraging connecting people, uniting the world. 
He said, we're going to go challenge other airlines out there to take the top spot as North America's premium airline of choice. Yeah. Um, and so um, for, for that, for a lot of other reasons, you know, um, you know, someone says to me, well, you answered the phone when United called. Why did you even answer the phone? <laughs> um, I think it was because I was intrigued by, by, by that. And so I, I um, got to know the people of United during the interview process, uh, who are, I find to be awesome. Um, but but simply, um, uh, Alan, I'm buying into United Next. I'm buying into um, how United is an industry innovator and disruptor and trailblazer, right? Whether it's it's the boom supersonic order, whether it's being a pioneer in in you know um, vertical takeoff and landing space, whether it's the electric aircraft, whether it's the um, you know high J. 767 that that Patrick's team pioneered the CRJ 550 connection saver right putting the customer first saying hey maybe there are times when the traditional metrics aren't what's good for those who we serve and really was showing this proclivity to challenge legacy assumptions for the new world we were entering yeah and uh, I was jazzed by the opportunity to be a part of that. And yeah. so much so that I was willing to reset my career, take a step back from the momentum, the trajectory. Look, if I wanted to, if my, if my reason for getting up every morning was to be promoted, the, the thing to do would have been to stay in America yeah, and sure. keep riding the momentum and the trajectory. But I got a lot of career left ahead of me. And to me, the bigger picture of being part of something bigger than myself and helping to energize my team towards that yeah. was just tantalizing. Yeah. So it's a gamble. I mean, you read a lot of trade publications and, and financials uh, documents. It, it's a, uh, it's a gamble. We're, we're making, you know, huge airplane order, you know, announcements, things like that. But I mean, I'm legacy United, but, one of the best articles I ever read was written by Greg Brenneman, published in the Harvard Business Journal about the the go forward plan that that Gordon Bethune and he inked together in in Gordon's you know dining room one night. It was fascinating and it worked. I mean, it turned it really Continental became a really a great great airline again. Uh, so it's it's a gamble here. So that's interesting. Um, all right, so. I did something before this podcast I haven't done with the other ones, which is I pulled the pilot group a little bit and said, hey, what questions do you guys want to want to to ask uh, Zach? And I'm not going <laughs> to I can repeat some of them, but because uh, they weren't towards you. It's just in general. But I think the one that that the most resounding question is. When, when are we going back to something that looks normal? And let me give you a big example. And you know this because you actually did a little digging, digging for me. Uh, today is what, April 27th. On March 4th, I finished 67 captain transition. I still have yet to do IOE, right? As you told me a few weeks ago, I'm lapsed. I've got to go back to TK, but no SIMs are available till May, right? So, you know, we, we've got a host of issues. When, when do you think that, you know, we know what your job is. We know what you do. Um, you know, we, bid just closed. When do you see things trying to get back to more of normalcy? Yeah. So, um, and obviously, you know, knowing this will be up on YouTube uh, and I have to, you know, Again, crystal ball. I, I don't want a crystal ball really. I just, <laughs> yep. 
you know, what's, what's driving the problems, I guess. Yeah. And so, so here's, here's, here's what I, I, I think I'll say is at risk of getting yeah. cutesy or too profound. Right. What is normal? What is the new normal? And so I've said to the team, look, we, we have to think of ourselves as two different airlines. You know, I, I've, I've talked about being United prior and United next. I mean, you talked about it, Alan, with, with, the, with the, um, the, the, the aircraft order, the aircraft coming once every X days. Um, the traditional airline planning cycle, the cyclicality of, 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 of seasonal shoulders and peaks and troughs, uh, is out the window, right? That, that, that change how we plan pilots, that's going to change how we plan for, um, training and, and, and who go right. Because in, in the old world, right, your seasonal troughs, um, you, you, you may leverage to, to do more training during that if you don't need as many of the pilots, but, but in the new world and the new United next world, um, what is normal? And I try and get my team's head wrapped around the airline we know did, doesn't exist anymore. And that shouldn't scare us. We should be so excited about the airline we're poised to be. But it's an airline that there's a lot of work and a lot of planning going into be that airline be successful. And I, I know we're going to be successful. But it's, it's, it's a world that, 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 that's just different. And so I think, I think it's first getting folks to be wrapped around their, their, their heads that normal is changing. Um, and so, and, and look, and I think I wrote about this in a crew resource update. Um, may have been my March one. Look, they're going to be being the trailblazer of, is 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 not sort of a straight path through sunshine and rainbows and they're going to be you know ebbs and flows windiness in the road time where it was oh you know the road's a little muddier than we would have liked it to be um and that comes with you know being the trailblazer being with leadership uh, being the leader being the pioneer and so i think what you described is is probably the transition to uh, you know, growing out of the backside of the pandemic, bouncing back and, and charting this course towards what our new normal is going to be. Um, and you may have heard me talk about it in other different contexts, but one of the things I really try and work with the team on is revisiting our assumptions. So taking the, the mindset shift that we need to have to be successful and say, hey, let's revisit our assumptions, okay? Does what got us here may not make us successful in the new normal we're going to be. And we can't just take for granted that that's going to be the case. And if we don't change a thing, okay, we're moving forward with double down conviction that how we did things is the right way to do things for the new normal. But I think it starts with this mindset. And, and I love seeing it throughout the company of just the energizing way people are rallied around this common cause, this future strategy, this North Star, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, um, and, and, and it's unifying us and the poise to be successful um, and the resources we're putting into plan to be successful. And I think some of what you described is just, you know, as we, as we put the car on the road to, 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 to chart down that course, um, it's 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 it comes with being that trailblazer and innovator. You know, you trailblaze, you chart the course, um, and and you find ways through sometimes uh, the mud at times. So, yeah. and you're I mean, better for it. There are 
numerous of us in, in the same position I'm in. And don't get me wrong. Yeah. I'm sitting at home getting 67 captain pay doing nothing for the airline. It's disconcerting from a employee perspective, wanting the company to yeah. do well. But at the same time, me personally, oh, I run a business for my house. So, you know, yeah. it's great for me. But uh, how long can we sustain it? And I'm far from the only one. You know, I've talked to dozens of people that are in the same boat. Um, Now, I know we're things are sounding good domestically, like we're ramping up big time. Uh, I know American announced we've announced four bookings all are looking great. Um, But we've still got triple sevens are trying to get flying. I, I assume that's paying playing a role. We're still waiting on Asia and the Pacific Rim to open up more so. So should I assume then, like you said, these are the bumps in the road of transitioning out of COVID uh, and into, hey, look, we've got all this ready to go. We've prepared everything for it. It's kind of a wait and see game. I guess one of the questions is, how long do we wait and see? If a year from now, for some reason, there's a hiccup and the triples aren't back. If a year from now, Asia, Pacific Rim still hasn't opened up. I mean, I, I guess that's a bigger conversation than just, your department that's a that's a yeah. huge yeah um does that concern you so look it's um there's a lot going on right now right the height of the pandemic may be behind us but we're there's still a long tail in some commercial respects as it relates to fly, to the point you pointed out you know um uh, not flying necessarily everywhere we would before and um uh you know the not flying all of our triple sevens um uh not having all the airplanes we thought we would and so the challenge is um building our training plans takes a long lead time right? We're making training decisions months and months from now based on an assumed block hour supportability that we have to go support. And when the changes happen inside that window where we've trained pilots for fleets that now we don't need to to fly, you know, now we're in balance somewhere and we're straining another fleet because, and so I think, you know, but, but that's our job to be able to, you know, be agile like that, uh, react to that. And, you know, I think, Part of the new normal is that never going away because it's also not always adverse situations. It's sure. it's opportunistic, right? right. If, if Patrick and Ankit's team say, hey, we see an opportunity there. How can you all in crew planning help us go? And what we want to do is do everything we can to figure out a way to support where network sees opportunity because it's good for us all, right? What's yeah. good for the goose is good for the gander. But the reality is at risk of oversimplifying our world, we make plans around block hour targets that we're right. given out for the next 12 to 18 months. Right. And that's what we build training plans and do vacancy bids to support. Um, and so I think it's ultimately what you described. I mean, those, those issues you bring up are bigger than crew planning. They're going to affect the block hour plan inside potentially the training window for which we've already started to train right. towards right. plans. Sure. Um, and so how do we go re-rally? Um, and that's what, you know, that's what we're, We've been doing sort of with the triples right now. Yeah. Uh, two, two more quick questions. Um, so you're, you're in Denver right now at the training center. Uh, I don't, I don't, I've never been to the American training center. Uh, do we have the resources in Denver to do, to, to execute this next plan in your opinion? Do we have the, the facility? Do. do we have the resources and manpower? Okay. I do. I work it. I walk into this and I, I just, I, I walk into this, with pride every, every morning. And that's not taking anything away from any other uh, training centers, but um, from, from other airlines, but like, I love, I love, I don't know if anyone's seen the ad, like when your kids ask, 
where pilots come from, you know, tell them the pilots are made in Denver. Um, And so I walk through and I see the buzz in the halls. I speak to, um, you know, captain upgrade classes, uh, new LCA classes. There's a great buzz in here. And so I think the resources is here, the spirits here, the leadership is here, the resolve is here um, and the long-term lens um, and the commitment, the dedication um, and the clarity of purpose around what our mission is flight ops's role in achieving united next is unambiguous um and yeah um hopefully you hear the conviction in my voice you don't take it as naive um um, optimism but rather confidence based on what i see and excitement for what will be yeah uh you mentioned lcas i mentioned me needing one um there and this is a labor relations issue, honestly, but um, it doesn't seem like we have the incentives in place for people to go out and do the LCA work, especially when there are, you know, premium pay trips flying out everywhere and these guys can't take advantage of it. Um, I assume this is something, this is a bottleneck you're aware of in, in the pilot training perspective. I got early notice training, for example. But I got late notice, i.e. no IOE. So I assume this is a piece you're working on with the company to try and figure out how we can incentivize more people to get out there and do this LCA work. I spend a portion of my day tending to the awareness of this matter. Yes. Okay. I, uh... All right. Enough said. Enough said. All right. Uh, the last thing is more of a comment. Uh, and this was a, a comment that came out of the questions, but it's also one that I've known for a long time. Uh, and I know you're busy. Uh, Paul did a great job of answering emails, questions, and, and, and you answered me in a very timely manner. I've had other people actually say that, yeah, he actually responded. He was on vacation with his family, right? Uh, we don't expect you to do that, right? But uh, that's the one feedback I would say is because your department is so uh, important into our futures and our ability to earn. Uh, anything you can do to keep the feedback coming to us is, is outstanding. Yep. And even if it means a crew resource, an additional crew resource update, you know, as a financial advisor, I write things time appropriate. And, you know, I put out something yesterday, the market was down another two and a half percent. So yeah, the communication I think would be outstanding if you could keep that going. Yeah. You know, it's funny. That's been, I'm not um, too proud to admit it's something I've struggled with the most since I get here because I'm all about communication um, and especially to those we serve. My team serves the pilots and you all are making life decisions based on information from us and and, and what we can glean to allow you to make it, those educated decisions. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, before I stepped into the role, I heard, yeah, that, that, that was, that was, that was one of many of the, the accolades of, of my predecessor's legacy. Um, and, you know, I, I read the crew resource updates and, um, I, I, I think I've responded to hundreds of pilots emails since I've gotten here. Yeah. I, there are also hundreds I know that I haven't. Right. So, so I responded to an email this morning before this call and the response I got was, wow, I was never expecting a response so quick. I think it was within two minutes, but I also know there are others from November 15th before I got my laptop that are just, just, just fell through the cracks. And I, I feel badly because, 
Um, you know, it, it, it's 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 interesting, um, and I'm glad you brought this up because it's a great opportunity to 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 just chat for a minute about something that's been on my mind. You know, and I, I hear about the the crew resource updates, and I I hear from the pilots. I've gotten emails about you know saying how well you all are expected to make PAs when every X minutes when you know stuff's going on. Um, to keep the customers informed and that I need to be doing that to, to you all as well. And you know what? You all are right. Um, but there, there's, also, there's also, we also understand, we understand that the lens you're looking through is a 12 to 18 month lens yeah. and things okay. change after that. We, we understand yeah. that we're, we're sitting here during a maintenance delay, just telling people we don't know what's happening, but it's still happening. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's value in that no update update. And, and I want you all to know that, that I get that. It's about that dependable rhythm of, you know, that every month doesn't have to be a four-page CRU, but even just, a, you know, first week of the month, hey, here's what's going on in three paragraphs. And some people may say, Zach, can we only write three paragraphs? It feels like you're just getting started three three paragraphs. But also, you know, there have been times since I've gotten here where it's also like, you know, you all probably have a mindset in the cockpit of when something's, uh, uh, you know, um, of, of when, when something's off, when you see a yellow, you know, um, master caution, it's like aviate, navigate, communicate. And so like when we get a wrench thrown in the plan, like, you know, triple seven, like returns, it's like sort of, okay, let's stabilize the situation and then communicate it. And so, so there have been opportunities like that during the first quarter where could we have communicated sooner and earlier? Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to do is um, I'm, I'm in the press of restructuring the team. We're going to go set up our team differently I'm uh, not taking anything away from how the team was set up in, in the past, but this comes back to revisiting our assumptions to be successful for the airline. We're going to be going forward. One of the things we're going to do is centralize this a pilot pilot support function to ensure um, help hub inquiries get tended to and routed correctly. Um, right now, we respond to pilot inquiries in a very dispersed fashion um, across folks who do it on top of their monthly pilot planning and production responsibilities. We're going to centralize that within pilot support, whose folks' job is going to be to ensure that we're responding to pilot inquiries timely and whatnot. I always recommend the help hub request because it gets routed to a SME. Um, but I also encourage folks, please, don't hesitate to reach out to me directly. But I just, my response time is a bit polarized. Um, sometimes I'm responding to people before they think they've even hit sent. Other times there are people that haven't gotten the response and it eats me up, but I'm, I'm not too shy to admit it. But regardless, I think what I'd like to do is, is twofold. Ensure that we are pushing out information on a monthly basis in some way, shape or fashion, and you're just hearing from us. I'd like to go deeper than that by ensuring that we have a living document around matters that are just we know to be topical when's the next vacancy bid where do we think it'll be focused and of the folks who have a vacancy award when can they expect to be trained and keep that as a living document and the last thing i'd like to do is we do that frankly alan we didn't talk a lot about leadership necessarily but really introduce you to the team i'm a sound bar for some people's really great work Really great people who know their craft well, who take a lot of pride in the responsibility of serving the pilots. And I want you all to get to know them. I'm a sound bar. I joke with the team. I'm the armor all on the tire. You can drive the car without the armor all. But the people who are the transmission, um, the, the engine, um, the air conditioning, like I want to start bringing those people out to the forefront. I'll tell you what, and I'll, I'll, I'll shut up after this, I promise. Um, 
I got an email from a pilot two days ago talking about the service that my team provided that pilot, two members of my team. Um, and it made my day um, because it's just uh, those team members are unsung heroes who work tirelessly and not that they do it for the thanks, but um, I, I, I want them to, um, you know, and, and their and my leadership is developing them as leaders. And I look forward to letting the pilot group um, come to learn and know who the real all-stars are. It's not me. Yeah, no, that's great. That's great. I think that's a great leadership trait. Uh, you know, the greatest thing for me with my one employee is when, when one of my clients says, oh, man, she did a knockout job with me for this. I'm like, that, that's outstanding. So, all right. Well, Zach, with that, I will let you go. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. I know the pilot group will really enjoy getting to know this. Uh, as best we can, we're going to hold you to some of your uh, <laughs> some of your strives to communication wise. We'd like to hear from you more. That'd be great. Um, and yeah, congratulations on the on the new role here at United. And we look forward to seeing you work your way through the ranks here. Awesome. And uh, I, I, you know, I'm poised for what we're all going to go do together, but um, I'd be remiss if I didn't end um, by how I should have started, which is for any pilot that's listening. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership out there. Um, you're flying us forward to United next. You're delivering on um, our, our, our quest to deliver a, a world-class customer experience, continue um, to, 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 to better it. And uh, you all are leaders in the operation. Um, you're delivering the brand um, and um, simply we, we, we couldn't do it without that leadership. Um, it makes a difference on the customer experience. There's an inextricable link between the customer experience and um, the, 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 the pilot's um, engagement, whether it's a, you know, a PA announcement or, or some, some other way of engaging. And um, you all are working hard to do that. And simply, uh, thank you. All right, we appreciate that. We really do. So, all right, Zach, we'll enjoy your week out there in Denver. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right. I will look forward to it. Thanks again, Alan. And thank you all.